0: Thanks, Carla. If you want to leave uh, your Bibles open and pull out your outlines, there'll be space there to take some notes as we go through uh, looking at this passage together now. Why don't we pray and ask God to help us understand what He's saying and to fix our eyes on what is important and how we should respond for us. Let's pray. Lord God, this morning as we have heard Your Word spoken, as we think through uh, what You've said to us, we ask that we might come away having heard You Only the words entered our minds, but having thought through how we act with the truth of what we understand, that we might be people who love because of being in your family. We pray this in your son's great name. Amen. Um, One of the greatest blessings of living in this city of Auckland is the kind of different cultures that exist around us. I think it's a great thing that we express here uh, in church together, is there are so many different cultures, people from all different races and cultures and colours and backgrounds. One of the values of the society we live in, of, of multiculturalism, is that of tolerance, isn't it? It's that we can live together with one another, alongside one another. And we can allow one another to hold our own opinions without forcing others to agree with us. Freedom of speech and freedom of belief, I think, are incredibly important concepts we should always try and fight for. We should allow people to hold their own beliefs on their own terms. That's something that we want to champion. However, today the meaning of tolerance often shifts from we can live side by side with our different beliefs to the only way to live side by side is to say all beliefs are okay. Have you noticed that? The tolerance people believe to mean we must say everything's okay, not that it's okay to be different. (laughs) And society kind of pushes us down this line. See, people have no problem with Christians saying that there is only one God. But as soon as we say that there are no other gods... Society cries intolerance, you hate people, what about the, the Muslim, the Buddhist, what, what, what are you saying there, you're, you're, you're crossing over into my ter- territory. Society cries out to us that we're bigoted, that we're kind of small-minded, that we can't think outside ourselves and we shouldn't say that. If you stop and think for a moment, the position of tolerance, where you can't disagree, is just impossible to maintain, because they're disagreeing with my view, <laughs> They're not tolerating my view, and they're saying you must tolerate this with everyone else, and that view shouldn't be tolerated. It just doesn't work at all. We haven't got to think about it for very long. You haven't got to think about the fact that atheists say that there is no God. But the Hindu says that there are hundreds of thousands of gods. The Muslim says that Allah is God and Jesus is not. And the Christian says there is only one God He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And He walked this earth 2,000 years ago, and He is still alive today. They can't coexist together and all be true. The atheist thinks that the Hindu, the Muslim, uh, and the Christian are wrong. And the Christian thinks that uh, the Hindu, the Muslim, and the atheist are wrong. We, We sit in this conflict of cultures. The question is, how do we respond? How does the Bible help us to respond in this situation? And what effect does it have on others? Now, as Paul begins the next section to his letter in the Corinthians, he addresses a society in a very similar position to us today. Society living with many religions, many idols, many gods, all side by side clashing from their different cultures. How do we respond to others who are steeped in the worship of other gods or idols? Should we eat with them? Should we even speak to them? Should we join in their cultural experiences and and, and enjoy it in that way and try and translate it to our kind of religious experiences? Should we not? Well, the next three chapters of 1 Corinthians will deal with some of these questions, all the way up to chapter 11, verse 1. And Paul begins on the issues of idols today, things people worship as a god or deity. Now, for many of us, we go, well, that's not that big for us. But nearly every Thai restaurant that I go into has a little idol up the top. If you're from different family backgrounds, your, your family may worship their ancestors. They may have family shrines. What do you do when you go to that house? Should you go to that house? Should you eat meat that has been blessed to other gods? We live in a society where these things do affect us. And the key question for us to ask is do other gods exist? Do other gods actually exist? Is there actually something to be concerned about when you walk into a restaurant and you see there's a statue there? Or when you see there's a family shrine, do, do we actually have to worry about these? Well, the way to answer that is to work out, is this anything? Is this a God that actually exists? Is this something to worry about? Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, it's on the screen. About eating food offered to idols then. We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. An idol is nothing in the world. There is no God but one. Do other gods actually exist? Paul says no. They don't exist. They're not there. They're figments of people's imagination. They're made up. Literally, the original says, there is no idol in the world. There is none. They're just made up stuff. There is no God but one. People might think there is another God. People might worship their God or their idol with passion and sincerity and devotion. They might be really excited about that. (laughs) The Bible is clear that there is only one God. And He's a God that is revealed through Scripture. The Bible's been clear from the beginning that there is only one God. Look at Jeremiah chapter 10. Like scarecrows in a cucumber patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they they can do no harm. They cannot do any good. Like scarecrows in a cucumber patch. They are made with human hands. There are no such things as idols. There are no things to fear with these other gods, for there are no other gods. That's the claim of the Christian message. It's the claim of Jesus. Jesus. Do we believe that just because the Bible says it? Do we come along and go, oh, I just believe everything that's here? No, we believe it because it's actually backed up by action throughout history. History records the life of Jesus of Nazareth. This man who comes on the face of history, he walks through the Middle East. And this man has an authority that is very different from anyone who's gone before him. He holds all the authority of God. He, he heals the sick. He stops wind and wave. He raises the dead. He forgives sins. Now, if someone walked in here today and was able to do that, we'd be like, whoa, that's crazy. It would make you think, wouldn't it? Maybe this person is different than everyone else we have met. And he rises from the dead after being crucified, like he said he would. He defeats death, not as some folklore, not as some private vision someone had, but real on the pages of history. People saw it. You could go and ask them in that day, had you seen Jesus rise from the dead? And they said, yes, and we'll die for that. History records uh, Pliny around 112 AD that Pliny's not a Christian. (laughs) Uh, He he records that the Christians were worshipping Jesus as God. This is coming from outside sources. Very early on, within 80 years of Jesus, there's actual record of people saying, the Christians worship Jesus as God. God walked this earth. Listen to Jesus' own words. John 14 verse 9, The one who has seen me has seen the Father. When you meet Jesus, you meet God. This is the one and the only God. The idea that there was one God wasn't a new one. Jews had been saying that since the beginning of their nation. Twice a day since the time of Moses, 1500 BC, the Jews would say what they called the Shema. Shema was a a saying they said to remind one another to keep hearing the God who is in control of it all. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, this is what the Shema is. Listen Israel, hear, the Lord our God, the Lord is one twice a day, 1,500 years. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. That was the key kind of concept of Judaism. There is only one God. Other gods do not exist. Now, that Hebrew phrase, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema, is exactly what Paul quotes here in in this letter. And listen to how he unpacks this view that There is only one God. This is how he explains that to others, verse 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father. All things are from Him, and we exist for Him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through Him, and we exist through Him. Now, at first reading of that, you kind of look at it and you go, is he saying that, that Jesus isn't God? There is one God, the Father, and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. Is the Father God and Jesus Lord? Is that what, what's going on? But remember, he, Paul's explaining this in the context of idolatry. Is there another God? Who should we worship? Is it a problem? You know, who, who do I give my worship to? And he un- unpacks that thing, explaining God the Father and God the Son. He's saying the Father and the Son are God. They are God. He's explaining the Shema. So look at that again on the screen. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. He is the Lord God. The Lord is one. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ. He's pulling the two together. Now, the word that's translated Lord there uh, in Deuteronomy verse uh, 6 verse 4 is the word Yahweh. It's the personal name of God. It's saying Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. But remember, the Jews wouldn't say Yahweh because they didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain. And so they would say Adonai, which means Lord. Um, and so here they're saying the Lord is God, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what Paul is doing in his genius is bringing the two together to show that even at the heart of the Jewish faith, There is this God who is Father, Son, and we'll see from other places, Spirit. There's not two gods, but one. One God, three persons, and two of those persons are on view here. It's a very clear explanation of God being, or of Jesus' divinity. All things are from the Father, through the Son. You see how they relate together? Everything that is, you, me, uh, this, this world that we live in, air, animals, plants, the solar system, everything that exists is from this God, no other. There is not a God of fertility and God of the rain and, and God of the, of the dream time. Or There is one God and He made it all and it all comes from Him, from the Father through the Son. Everything exists for Him. That's why we actually need to deal with this God. That's why the whole world needs to come and know Him. Because we exist for Him. And to live any other way is to live in rebellion against the God who made us. It's kind of like coming to your parents and saying, oh, I just don't want to treat you as my parents. I don't think you made me. I'm just going to ignore you for the rest of my life. If I've done nothing wrong and only done everything to love you, how offensive that is there is one God and we are responsible to Him. To claim that there is any other God, whether that's the Godson or the fertility God, is offensive to God. But then you kind of look back a verse and you go, hang on a minute, is He actually saying this that strongly? I don't know if you saw it as we went through, look at verse 5. Is it perhaps that He's just saying that, well, the, the Christians believe there's one God and others have a different belief, and that's true for them. It's this kind of postmodern view. Have a look. For even if there are so called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. Is this postmodern Paul, right? Coming along, going, yeah, what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. It doesn't really matter. It's fine. No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying there is one God, but in a sense, there are other gods. People live as if other gods exist. They are no gods. They're like scarecrows in a cucumber patch, right? They're not real, but people treat them as real. And so for them, they think they're real, even though they're not. And that's why we want to tell them the news of Jesus. They might meet the real and true God. But the world that Paul lived in like the world we live in, is enamoured by what people call or treat as gods, enamoured by many lords, many people or things that we follow that we put in that place of ultimate worship, people living for something or someone else apart from the true and living God. Whether it be a wooden idol or a wooden frame of our house, Whether it be some human conception of deity or the size of our bank account balance or the comfort of our lifestyle, we all live for something. We all have something that we place in that ultimate position of worship in our lives. However, Christians know there is only one worthy of our worship. And our bank balance, not some statue, not some foreign concept of a deity, but the true and living God, the God. Who Paul reveals in that next verse there now in chapter 10 in the same section we'll get to it in a couple of weeks Paul will say that worship of anything or anyone other than God is actually demonic so he does recognize that there is more in the spiritual realm than just God there are demonic forces there is Satan uh, and Satan is trying to go through the world and get people to trust him and doesn't care how just don't trust Jesus just live for me and take people with him to hell forever that's what he's trying to do. And look at what he says in chapter 10, verse 20. No, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. We'll get to this next week, but what he's, well, a couple of weeks. But what he's saying is in a world where people worship so many gods, where we have so many lords and so many rulers, he's saying there is only one God. And to worship anything else as if it were God is demonic. Say it again, to worship anything else as if it were God, as if it should have the ultimate place of rule in my life, is demonic. It's worship of Satan. That should make us go, man, am I being enslaved by Satan? Am I living with God in second place anywhere in my life? But given that we're trying not to do that, Even here, Paul was writing to this church to how they are to live. How should they live in a world filled with so many people worshipping all these pretend gods? How do we react? How do we respond? What do we do when we get invited to the restaurant with the shrine in the corner? What do we say to family or, or parents who want us to come and worship their ancestors with them? What do we do with food that has blatantly been sacrificed to idols? Well, that's where we see the importance of knowledge. The importance... Of knowledge. Chapter 8 verse 4, about eating food offered to idols then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. Now look at verse 8, food will not make us acceptable to God, we are not inferior if we don't eat, we are not better if we do eat. <laughs> knowledge, knowing the truth, means we know how to live. Knowledge is important. That's why gro- growing in our knowledge of God is such an important thing, we want to see people growing in their knowledge of God to know Him and know His way. See, all knowledge of God, all theology, is practical. Some people, they kind of come along and go, Oh, no, I just, that theology stuff, that's just not for me. I don't really want to study God, because what theology means, a study of God. Um, and they think, Oh, it's just all theological. I don't want to be theological like. Right? I want to say, No, you do. <laughs> because. All knowledge of God flows out into how we live. As He explains who He is and what He has done, we respond in, well, that means I must change the way I live. Because of that, knowledge is important. It defines how we live, what freedoms are good for us and what aren't. That's why, as a church, we work through books of the Bible. Because the Bible is the only place God has promised to speak with authority. It's the only place God has promised to speak with authority. The Bible is God speaking to us. The apostles, the ones who knew Jesus, wrote it down. They wrote down what Jesus had to say and they took this faith to the world and Christianity took off after Jesus rose from the dead. By the work of the Spirit, through the word they wrote down, that we have preserved today we might know God and His will for us. And here what we see in this knowledge is that food is nothing. It doesn't matter if it's been sacrificed to a pretend God. It was a pretend God in the cucumber patch. It doesn't matter. It makes no difference or not. Food can't affect me. Food doesn't make you closer to God or further away from God. Well, there's one way food can make you closer to God. That's if you stop eating it for a long time. If you stop eating food for a long time, you'll meet God. Uh, you'll die and that'll be it, right? That's the only way food can make you closer to God, right? It, it, it does nothing. If you abstain from eating, it doesn't matter. See, knowledge gives us freedom here. But there's a big problem with knowledge. A big problem. Knowledge has an uninvited sidekick, and his name is pride. With knowledge often comes pride alongside. Look at what I know. How great am I? I know this thing. I know that thing. And pride just comes along, and it's like knowledge is the end point, because we're all kind of beefed up with knowledge. Look at 8 verse 1. About food offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge inflates with pride, but love builds up. Knowledge inflates with pride, but love builds up. As much as knowledge of God is important, knowledge of God is not the goal. It is not the goal for Christians. And we say it again, knowledge of God is not the goal for Christians. It's not the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is to be known by God. Not to know Him, but to be known by Him. Look at verse 2. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it, as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by Him. What would you prefer uh, to have? To have knowledge about God or to be known by God? I want to show you the difference. Um, one of my childhood heroes is a guy called Tommy Emmanuel. He's a fantastic guitarist. He's just brilliant. And he's just had a, a big impact on me growing up. I love listening to his music. You listen to it, it sounds like there's two guitarists playing, but it's just one at once. And he's doing crazy stuff with his fingers. Now, I lot know lots about him. Right? I kind of bought all his albums. I listened to his stuff. I bought notebooks to be able to try and work out how to play some of his stuff. I spent time kind of working out things about him. I even went to one of his shows went along and I've heard him, I've heard him twice now. And I'm like, I've been there and I met him. Let me show you this. Here is my guitar strap, right? And on the back of my guitar strap is a signature. You probably can't see it, but it says Tommy Emmanuel. He's touched this guitar strap. I kid you not. Just carefully put it back, right? Now, I know lots about him. But if I were to bump into Tommy in the street, he wouldn't know me for a bar of soap. He'd be like, whatever, another crazy Australian. Like, what's, what's going on? He, he, he doesn't know me. But imagine if he did. What would be better, for me to know about him or for him to stop and go, hey, Rowan, how are you doing? How's that guitar strap I signed? Is it worn off yet? Do you want me to sign another one for you? Do you want a few more tips we could chat together? And hey, why don't you just come around to my head? Like, to be known by him is far better than to know about him, isn't it? Imagine being known by God. Not just that we know about Him, but that He knows us and calls us His children. That is the goal of the Christian life, is to be known by God. And He has made that possible. He has made it possible through Jesus' death in our place. He has made it possible for people who've rejected our God to know Him and to be known by Him. For God to adopt us, to call us His children... How great it is to be called the children of God, that He might know the number of hairs on our head. So often I get mixed up with our kids' names. We have four, but I kind of get confused at times, right? They get confused. The other day, I think Lara called Nathaniel Ethan. I'm like, ha, it's not just me. Like, this is great. They get mixed up. God knows your name. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your days. He knows your thoughts. He knows your actions. If you trust in Him, you are known by God. How do we know if we are known by God? Well, Paul says, if we love Him. It's not knowledge, but love that is the signpost for being known by God. For we can only love God if God has revealed Himself to us and come to us in the person of His Spirit because of the work of His Son. How do we know that we are known by God? Because we love His family. We love our Father like any child loves their father. They're jealous for their family name. They have this family likeness. And Paul is saying the family likeness is love. Love for God and love for one another. Have a look at verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by Him. Does love characterize the way you respond to God? Does it characterise the way you think about what you know? Knowledge is vitally important, but without love for God, knowledge just puffs up. It makes us full of pride. Look at what I know. That's where we get the phrase "know it all" from, right? The person who knows it all. Now I take it if you know it all, that's got to be a good thing. Like I, I don't want to say, right? You should know less. Right? Knowledge is helpful. We, we want it, but the person who's a know-it-all. They, they kind of go around going, I've got all this knowledge, and they kind of use it like a kid at the wheel of a V8 car. Just like, like crazy, and they smash around everywhere. You know? They need to be on one of those little trucks. They push with their legs. They can't have a V8 in them yet. They're not, they're not able to do that because they haven't got the emotional intelligence to work out how to drive it. Knowledge without love is like that. We need to recognize what we know and express that in love. Love towards God and love towards others. But that's when we see that there are some who have a lack of knowledge. And as Christians, there's a certain way we need to respond. People who think food offered to idols is actually something. Now, we know, knowledge tells us, um, that idols are nothing, right? God has revealed that through His Word. Yet there will be some who have a lack of knowledge, who don't yet know. They are ignorant towards this reality. They love Jesus. They want to serve Jesus. He's talking about Christians here. As we get to chapter 10, we'll see he starts talking about the way that we we act towards those who aren't Christians. But here he's talking about Christians. Uh, They have a lack of knowledge. They're so steeped in a world with idolatry around them that they're tempted to think idols are real. And they say, well, you can't eat that food that's been sacrificed to an idol. You can't do that. That's not right because it's been sacrificed to an idol. We should never do that. And their consciences are kind of like, no, this, this is wrong. And They think that eating anything like that is wrong. Look at verse 7. However, not everyone has this knowledge. In fact, some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food offered to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. There are a whole realm of things that we consistently look at in the world that we think could be wrong. Knowledge tells us whether it's right or wrong, but it can cause us to stumble or cause others to stumble, to think that I shouldn't be doing this and someone else starts doing it and we're like, oh, maybe I should do it and I'll just go against my conscience thinking it's wrong because they're doing it, I'm going to do it and it gets us in all sorts of trouble, gets the person with a lack of knowledge in trouble. It applies to a whole heap of different areas, not just food offered uh, to idols. You know, as we come to church on Sunday morning, should we mention the rugby score? Because there'll be some weaker brothers amongst us that recognise that 42 to 8 is a lot. And when Australia lost, we might stumble now, right? And so we're sitting here going, oh, this is bad. Because Australia lost so terribly and causing us to stumble. Be like, maybe you should just be quiet about it, Michael. And then later on, (laughs) no, it's good, we chatted about it before. Um, Although it wasn't a setup, God's great. Um, But that might cause me to stumble because I have some issue with my pride. Now, that's the wrong way around. But there are a whole lot of other issues too. Can we drink? Can Christians drink? Some people say, no, we should not drink. Others go, yes, we can. Well, the Bible's clear that what goes into us can't make us sinful. It's what comes out of us, it's the way we act. And so drinking alcohol isn't a, a sinful thing to do, uh, yet others might think that because of all sorts of different ways. And so we want to think about the way we act around them. Is it sinful to smoke? Well, no, it just comes in and goes out. Is it wise? No, it's a waste of money. It's going to give you cancer. But so does eating food. Right? Things give you cancer, we're going to die. Okay, It's not necessarily sinful in and of itself, yet some might think it is. Well, what about getting a tattoo? Is, is that right or wrong? Well, there's a number of issues that for Christians keep coming up. What day do we, we celebrate the Sabbath? a whole heap of different issues that are there. But here he's particularly talking about the ones that are applied to idolatry, to other gods. Paul's just spent the last three chapters, remember, saying that what we do with our bodies matter. Right, we must make sure we use our bodies in marriage with sexual immorality carefully. But he's saying, with regard to these things, the Bible gives us freedom. But there are some who are part of God's family who don't yet have knowledge on the freedom that we have, who see some of these things as wrong. Now, my gut instinct, maybe this is just the way I am, my gut instinct is to do those things that are wrong in the presence of others, to go, look, you're free. Like, it's fine to drink alcohol, it's not a problem, chill out, relax. Even if someone's there with a kind of, a, you know, they're like, oh, I'm not sure if we should drink, I'm like, oh, have a glass of wine, wine a day is fine, you're not going to get drunk on that. Right? It's it's, it's no problem. That's just how I am, I want to help people see that it's okay, I want them to understand this, to encourage them, there are no other gods. You can go into the Thai restaurant and eat the Thai food that they've prayed over and be like, I'm sweet, can eat this because this is just... You've you've blessed it to something that doesn't even exist. There is only one God and I am free to eat this. My my natural instinct is to express my freedom. But that's where knowledge without love is disastrous. Knowledge without love can be disastrous. Look at verse 9. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has this knowledge, dining in an idol's temple? Won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? Then the weak person, the brother for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Knowledge without love is disastrous in two ways. It's disastrous to others and it's disastrous to us. Let me talk about others first. Knowledge without love is disastrous to others we should never go against our conscience. We should never lead others to go against their consciences. If they think something is wrong, we should never say, just do it anyway, knowing that it's fine. Sure, we could explain why it is fine, but we should never encourage them to do it while they still think it's wrong, because it will just eat us out. I'm not saying that we can't teach what the Bible says and explain it from Scripture clearly. Yes, we can, but what's on view here is people, by their actions, leading others to go against their consciences, to do things that they think is wrong by seeing the example of someone else eating in the temple where the the meat has been sacrificed to idols, and others going, well, it must be alright for him, but I still think it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's possible to lead that person without knowledge against their conscience, to get them to do something they think is wrong. And here's why it's disastrous. Then the brother or sister for whom Christ died is ruined, is destroyed by your knowledge. We've caused them to go against their conscience. As an aside for a moment, if your conscience is pricking you in some area of life, if it's saying, look, I shouldn't be doing this thing and I think I need to stop, won't you listen to it? Don't just ignore it, don't go against conscience. Check out what the Bible says and see, is this right or not? Talk to others, try and work through that issue. But whatever you do, don't go against it, it will ruin you. It will tear up your faith because you're saying, I believe this to be true but I'm not living it. Well, it won't be long before you believe Jesus to be true but you're not living for Him either. This is serious. Paul even says that to go against your conscience, no matter whether it was a good thing to do or a wrong thing to do, if you go against your conscience, even if it's an okay thing for you to do, it's sin. Have a look, verse 13. Therefore, if food causes my brother to fall, I will never eat meat again so that I won't cause my brother to fall. Literally, to fall means to sin. Paul's saying that to go against conscience is sin. Even if you later grow in your knowledge and work out that that act was not actually sinful in itself, to go against your conscience, to do something that you thought was wrong, is sinful. Martin Luther, the the great reformer, is famous for this line, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. So helpful, saying that his conscience will sit under what God's Word says, but maybe we need to add another line to that. My conscience is captive to the Word of God, and my knowledge is bound by my love for others. I want to not lead others to go against their consciences too. Knowledge without love is disastrous to others. And knowledge without love is disastrous to you too. We might be free to act in a certain way, but depending on its effect on those around us, it might actually not be loving. It may actually be sinful. Look at verse 12. Now, when you sin like this against the brothers and wound their weak consciences, you were sinning against Christ. What's he saying? You didn't do anything wrong in and of itself in eating that food sacrificed to idols, but by leading someone else to go against their conscience, you were sinning. It's not just what I do that is right or wrong, but it's possible to do a right action that causes others to stumble, to go against their conscience. And that right action that I do Becomes sinful the moment it leads others to go against their consciences. Do you see that? Even though, in and of itself, that action is fine. We are not a world of individuals, it's not just me and God. And is this thing right to do? Well, it doesn't matter how it affects anyone else, we're a family. We're called into God's family. That means we need to care about how our actions affect others to make sure others get across the line and they keep putting Jesus first, that He is their God. My sinfulness can be dependent on another's response to actions that are not in and of themselves wrong. Say it again. My sinfulness can be dependent on another's response to actions that are not in and of themselves wrong. Do you see how others' response actually affects me? I need to think through how this impacts them. The sinful thing isn't eating the food. It's not loving the brother or sister. So for us, we need to think about how our actions could cause others to go against their conscience in areas that we're free but could cause them to stumble in. Do you think like that? Do you think about your life in the way that you affect others? Your actions affect them, not just what I do, but how I cause others to respond to me. That's love, isn't it? That's love with knowledge. I I love being part of this church. I love seeing and hearing all about the different ways that we love and care for one another. Ways both large and small, big things and little things. It's what it's supposed to be. I really do love being part of that. But we as a church must not fall in the trap that says I go to a church that teaches the Bible well that grows me in my knowledge and never merely apply sorry and only apply that to my knowledge not my life. I must not come along and be built up in my knowledge of God's word but not apply it in love. Not think about how I build others up serving one another. It doesn't mean that knowledge has no part to play. It does. Chapters 5 to 7 show that. But we must express that knowledge in love. And the larger we get as a church, and I pray it keeps getting larger and larger as more and more people see who Jesus is and come to know Him and we share the news of Jesus with others. That's that's my prayer. But the larger we get, the easier it will be for us to fall into the trap of thinking, I'm not needed. I just come along for a knowledgeable top-up. I come along to think about how I act and then I go home and I don't think about the other. I don't think about our family, about our church together. Be easy for us to fall into this trap of consumer mentality. Where we come to consume the Word of God and not to build one another up. We meet in the temple of materialistic consumerism. That's where we are. We're in the heart of, of people saying you can feel better about life if you worship yourself by making yourself look better, by filling your stomach with great food, by walking out of here, knowing that now that thing that you needed, you have. And next time you come back in and there's a new one, you have to have that as well. We're in the centre of that, and it's so easy to become like the world around us and worship the dumb idols, the scarecrows in the cucumber patch. Or it's easy to go, oh, we're not like that. We know there is only one God. But then not apply that knowledge in love to care for one another. We need to think of church as more like a gym than a theatre. You know, the type of gym that you go to that's a good gym, where everyone at the gym wants to help everyone out. They want to spot one another and care for one another as you're building one another up in knowledge, in love. You know, that's the sign of a good gym, isn't it? Where everyone is there to help one another. The sign of a, a bad gym is when you kind of see these guys walking around in their Arnold Schwarzenegger voice saying, look at my muscles. My muscles are built up bigger than anyone else, right? And they're always about themselves, and they, they use the kind of Christian jargon. I am a Trinitarian Calvinist, a millennial presuppositionalist. And you're like, woo! You know? Good for you! Now, we should be growing in our love and knowledge of God. We should be growing in our knowledge of Him, to understand Him more, but it must be expressed in love for Him and love for one another. We're called to grow, but in knowledge and love, they go hand in hand. The great ones, the great Christians throughout history are not the ones with PhDs in theology. They're not the great speakers and preachers. They're lo- those that use their knowledge in love to build one another up. The kids church teachers who take time out to see kids come to know Jesus and to work out how to live that out. Those who pray for others in love to see that they keep trusting Jesus. The people who come before church in the set up and pack up team to see these things set up so that the word of God might go out, not because it makes them look good, but so that we might hear the Word of God together and be built up. That's knowledge with love, isn't it? Building one another up in those areas. Now, Paul will say in a couple of chapters time that we should eagerly desire these greater gifts. But the preacher can't preach unless the Pack and Setup team serve. They're partnering together as we do to see the news of Jesus go out. We need both. The arm can't say the leg, I don't need you. As a small aside, I want to say there are a number of areas in our church at the moment that are ripe for service. They may not be upfront flashy things, but they are places where we need to express the love that we have, the knowledge that we have in love. And there's only four people on our set up and pack up team at the moment. And that's only one team. Four people set up and pack up this church pretty much every week. So I would encourage you to think through, is that an area that you might go, yeah, look, I can help with this. I can help these guys to partner together to see this gospel go out. It's an awesome opportunity to express your knowledge of the triune God who has freed us from having to worry about rules and regulations to serve Him, to see others built up. But it's not only in what we do, it's in what we don't do. It's in looking at areas that cause others to Stumble where they may cause others to stumble. You won't know every area for every person, and we're not called to do that, but if you know someone has a particular area that they, they, they are from that might cause them to stumble, then don't just go do it. Talk to them about it. It might mean you hold back from drinking when that person is around. It might mean you, you, you think carefully about um, going to that Thai restaurant when they're working so hard with their family to, to kind of walk away from the, the ancestor worship, and you take them to an, a restaurant that there's, that going on there, and they are like, what is this? Maybe I should just go on. What could you need to forego? What area of your freedom might you need to hold back on for the sake of others? I, I can't answer that in every area. What we need to do is think through how we might love one another with the knowledge God has given us. There is only one God, and He has come to us in the person of His Son. He has loved us, And if you trust in Him, you are known by Him. And so Paul says, love God and love others as we serve this true God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have revealed yourself in the person of your Son. That Jesus has come and made you known to us. That you have reached out and you have showed us your love. Father, help us to consistently work out how we might love you by loving one another. How as a church we might build one another up to keep growing, not only just in knowledge, but in knowledge and love together. Show us where we haven't done that well. Help us to apologize where we haven't done that well. For those of us here that are thinking through whether Jesus is the real deal, Lord, today we ask that you would show yourself to us. That we would see the true God who has made all and sustains all. Father, we pray that in our response to you, we might live with Jesus as our God and our ruler and our Lord. That we might live our lives for his glory, we pray. Amen.